Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this week's session of the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. My name is Keith McLaughlin, and it's my pleasure to be your moderator this afternoon. Before I introduce our presenter, I have a few reminders. I'd like to remind you that uh, this session is being recorded, and to please turn off your cell phones. Uh, lunch is $11. Please make sure to place that payment in the basket located at your table. This is important because SACPA is an entirely volunteer-driven, not-for-profit organization that relies on the contributions of its members and attendees in order to operate. SACPA would like to acknowledge and thank the University of Lethbridge for its ongoing support, Country Kitchen Catering and their wonderful staff, and Shaw TV and the Lethbridge Herald for their ongoing coverage of SACPA discussions. Our program today will feature a 25-minute presentation from our presenter, uh, followed by lunch, which will take another half hour, and then at around 1 p.m. we will begin a, a half-hour Q&A session. Our presenter today is David Campanella, and he's here to explore and shed light on the subject and the question, why is disparity running rampant in Alberta? What is it about Alberta's economy, politics, and policies, both social and economic, that allow for the wealthy and uber-wealthy to prosper so greatly, while the poor and the vanishing middle struggle to get by or to maintain their position? David is the public policy research manager for the Parkland Institute and is based in Calgary. He received his master's degree in 2011 from York University where he studied environmental politics and focused on the political history of carbon capture and storage in Alberta. Please welcome David Capanella. The uber wealthy, I like that Keith, that's a good, good term. They're a whole new class. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, first off, let me just say that I have a tremendous amount of respect for the committed volunteers that keep this organization going. They obviously value uh, an, informed citizen, an informed citizenry and an informed public debate. And these are values that are very much in line with the objectives of the Parkland Institute. So thank you very much. My presentation today, as Keith mentioned, will hopefully act as a primer on the topic of uh, the incredibly important topic of inequality. Answering some of the basic questions like what it is, why it exists, and what we can do about it. First though, I'd like to say a few words about the organization I work for, the Parkland Institute. I know some of you will already be familiar with the Institute, thanks to your fellow uh, Lethbridgian, I'm not sure what the right term is there, but uh, Trevor Harrison, the Institute's director. For those who don't know, Parkland Institute is an Alberta-wide research network based in the University of Alberta. We are what the media commonly refers to as a think tank. We use the lens of political economy, a method with rich history in Canada, to research important economic, social, and political issues facing Alberta and Canada. Our goal is to produce relevant research that allows people to better understand our current situation and articulate alternative futures. We're often bombarded by the notion that there is no alternative, that the correct policy is whichever one that makes the market the happiest. As an institute, 
We strive to make clear that that is not the case and that the alternative approaches to policymaking not only exist, but are more in line with the interests of most people. I think it's safe to say that rising inequality is one of the most critical and defining issues of our day, both in Alberta and more broadly. The Occupy movement, that spontaneous eruption of popular anger at neoliberal policies, set its sights squarely on inequality and brought the phrase, we are the 99% into our everyday vocabulary. Inequality has also figured prominently in policy documents coming from pro-industry organizations such as the Conference Board of Canada and the International Monetary Fund, as well as in the pages of The Economist, which isn't exactly a bastion of left-wing thought. The Parkland Institute has also entered into the fray. And we've published two reports now, along with the Alberta College of Social Workers, that analyzes inequality in this province. Simply put, inequality appears to have become an issue that can no longer be ignored. So what do we mean by inequality? Inequality is about relative income levels, and it's measured by looking at how a jurisdiction's overall income is divided among its populace. In a perfectly equal society, everybody would have the same amount of income, and in a perfectly unequal society, one person would take home all the income. Inequality also acts as a, win a window into a central concept of political economy, which is class. While inequality is a socioeconomic indicator based on income, class is defined as how people relate to the economy. This is a fantastic uh, diagram that I borrowed from Jim Stanford's book. And the basic class division in capital, capitalism is between the owners and those who work for the owners. In this graph, you can see the owners are saying, I want you to work faster and longer with fewer breaks for a lower wage. And the worker is saying, I want to earn a decent wage in safe and comfortable conditions and have time off to enjoy my life. The division of income between the highest income earners and everyone else is a rough indicator of how well the economy and government policies are serving the owners relative to the workers. Inequality has become one of the defining features of our time. Recent research by Emmanuel Saez has found that income inequality in the US was higher in 2008 than at any time dating back to 1913. This graph here shows that the total income going to the top 0.01% of income earners in the US. Amazingly, you can see that the two major peaks in 1929 on this side and 2008 were both immediately followed by major financial disasters and severe economic depressions. A similar pattern can also be seen in Canada. This borrowed from a CCPA study a couple years ago, and you can see the same U-shaped diagram. With the elite individuals at the high end of the income ladder receiving so much of society's wealth, inequality has risen to profound new heights. And recent research is showing that high levels of inequality has serious economic consequences. The International Monetary Fund, like similar organizations, used to assume that inequality was a necessary and beneficial outcome of economic growth as it provided the necessary surplus of income at the top to stimulate investment. 
But the IMF's recent research turns that conclusion on its head and points out that the single most the single factor most highly correlated with longer-term economic growth is the equality of income. Moreover, the World Economic Forum, an annual gathering of the world's elites, declared last January that the biggest risk to the global economy was income inequality. And the reasoning isn't hard to understand. For goods to be produced in our economy, there has to be people willing and able to buy them. And if not enough income is going to the masses, then there is insufficient demand to drive investment and production. And while that gap can be closed somewhat through credit and debt, as we know, there's serious limits to relying too heavily on that stopgap measure. Recent research has also uncovered the myriad of social consequences related to high inequality. The connection between inequality and well-being are detailed in depth in the 2010 best-selling book, The Spirit Level, by Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, which I know some people in this room have, are familiar with. Included in the list of associated consequences are a whole range of things, such as uh, shorter life expectancies, higher rates of mental illness, higher rates of drug addiction, poorer education outcomes, higher rates of imprisonment, less social mobility, less social cohesion and trust, higher rates of violent crimes and homicides, and higher rates of teenage pregnancy. So with that in mind, how equal is income distribution in Alberta? How is Alberta doing on this key measure of social and economic well-being? Well, Alberta has the highest level of income inequality in Canada. Over roughly three decades of technological advances in economic growth, the bottom 90% of Albertans have seen their average income increase $4,000, from $32,000 to $36,000 a year. Meanwhile, the top 0.1% of tax filers in Alberta have seen their average income more than double, from $927,000 to $2.4 million, an incredible increase of $1.5 million. That leaves the average income of the top 0.1% 67 times higher than that of the bottom 90%. And it's important to note here that this is a measure of income, not wages, which is dollars per hour. So it's not, necessar it's not necessarily followed that the 90% has actually seen an increase in their wages. More likely, it's the fact that Albertans work longer hours than everybody else in Canada, and so the raise could simply be due to Albertans putting in more hours at work. And I'd like to play just a quick guessing game here. What do you think was the average income of the top five CEOs in 2009? One, five, fifteen. I'll stick with the first two, but that was closer. It was eleven million eighty-four thousand one hundred and twenty-three dollars. That same year, the average income of the bottom 90% remained $36,000. These figures show that the last three decades of economic development and growth in Alberta have been virtually nothing in terms of real income gains for most Albertans, while those at the very top of our society have benefited tremendously. Indeed, Alberta has the richest rich in Canada, 
At $672,100, the income of the top 1% in Alberta is far higher than anywhere else in the country, where the national average is just $422,000. Alberta also has the poorest poor. The intensity of poverty can be measured by the poverty gap, which basically looks at how far below the poverty line are the average people on low income living. And Alberta has the highest gap. Individuals in Alberta on low income live 23% below the poverty line. Alberta also has one of the highest wage gaps between men and women, with women in full-time, full-year jobs earning just 68% of their male counterparts. Additionally, the boom and bust direction of our economy has driven up income inequality, as the benefits of the boom go overwhelmingly to the top income earners, and the costs of the busts are disproportionately borne by the poor. This can be most recently seen uh, following the Great Recession in 2008, which saw the bottom 10% of income earners in Alberta see their income fall 20%, while the top 40% saw their incomes impacted negligibly. So with that in mind, does Alberta's high level of inequality translate into any of the social symptoms described in the spirit level? Well, not surprisingly, it does. And I'll just rhyme off a few here. The sense of community and social cohesion in Alberta is the second lowest in the country, with only 60% of Albertans reporting having a somewhat or strong sense of belonging to their community. I'm sure this group is uh, not uh, doesn't conform to that, but that's what the average is for Alberta. Alberta has the highest rates of family violence in the country and leads the country in domestic assault, homicide, suicide, and stalking. Alberta has a very high level of political exclusion, which is clearly evident from the low voter turnouts during our provincial elections. Uh, for instance, in 2008, the rather infamous election, we had the lowest turnout of any provincial election in the last 50 years at 41%. And even our last, political, our last provincial election, which was... Um, deemed to be a nail-biter and possibly the end of the PC dynasty, still only had a voter turnout slightly higher than 50%. Alberta has a very low participation rate in post-secondary education, and Albertans report a very low satisfaction with life and are second lowest in the country. So how are we to account for such a high level of inequality in Alberta? While a certain level of inequality is a fact of life in a capitalist society, the highly exacerbated level of inequality in Alberta is due to the package of policies ironically referred to as the Alberta Advantage. <laughs> the ruling ideology of consecutive PC governments is economic development through the trickle-down effect, which is the idea that more money at the top will eventually mean more money at the bottom as well. But as the data, some of the data that I've pointed to shows, this ideology has failed, and the result has been severe income inequality in this province. So let's take a closer look at three of the main components of the Alberta advantage. The flat tax. Implemented in 2001, it represented a major tax break for the wealthiest Albertans as every income level is now taxed at the same rate of 10%, with no marginal increases 
on higher income levels, which is standard in almost every other jurisdiction in the world. As a result, middle income and low income Albertans pay among the highest income taxes in the country, while the wealthiest pay the lowest. Progressive income taxes have long been one of the key mechanisms for dampening inequality. By asking those who receive disproportionately high incomes in the market to pay a higher share of that income back to society. Another one is corporate tax cuts. Corporations in Alberta pay exceptionally low corporate taxes. The general corporate tax rate is 10%, which is tied for the lowest in Canada. Our government has also pursued a policy, our federal government has also pursued a policy of routinely lowering its corporate tax rate, and without Alberta picking up the slack, the combined federal-provincial corporate tax rate has plummeted from 33.6% in 2005 to 25% in 2012. These tax cuts have meant that the meteoric rise in corporate profits in Alberta has brought relatively few benefits for most Albertans through additional tax revenue. The blue line there is corporate profits and the red line is the corporate tax revenue. We also have our resource giveaway. Rather than a staged plan of development that ensures Albertans receive the maximum value for the one-time use of their resources, the provincial government maintains an economic development strategy based on royalty breaks for wealthy oil corporations in order to promote the extraction of Alberta's fossil resources as fast as possible. In the tar sands specifically, Oil corporations are given a royalty break so that they can start to make profits faster than they otherwise would, and this royalty break has cost the public billions in foregone royalty revenue. As this graph shows, the blue line is the share of overall revenue going to the public. In 1978 and 1979, Albertans earned 40% of the revenue generated by the sale of their oil and gas. By 2011, the government's development through royalty break scheme meant that the public share had fallen to 9%. And this has meant literally billions of dollars being lost. Former Premier Lougheed set a target to capture 35% of the value of the resource for the public. And as you can see, he exceeded that goal uh, for those few years there. And currently, our provincial government, by failing to meet that objective, by failing to maintain and meet that objective, it will cost the provincial treasury $19 billion this fiscal year and again in the following fiscal year. And looking at the most recent provincial budget, it made the government's strategy and its failure exceptionally clear. While the government clamored about the decline in bitumen royalties, it didn't make any mention of its ongoing royalty holidays on all new oil and gas drillings in this province, including an extended, uh, an extended royalty holiday for horizontal drilling, which is a, what the bulk of new drilling in this province will be. The budget shows that the government managed 
this year or this past fiscal year to increase conventional production 12%. But in doing so, it collected 18% less in royalties. Chew on that for a minute. More production, less royalties. And looking ahead to 2015-16, this trend is looking like it will continue. The government plans to maintain production and sell our resources, expects to sell our resources for the same price, yet collect half a billion dollars less in revenues that year. So clearly Alberta is pretty good at distributing its wealth upwards. It's not so good, however, at distributing our wealth downward. Our level of social assistance payments are drastically inadequate and ensure that more people are locked into poverty rather than providing the needed help to escape. This graph shows how drastically social spending was cut in the early 1990s as part of the government's obsession with eliminating the deficit, and it has never recovered, remaining below the national average the entire time. For most of the past decade, Alberta's minimum wage has been either the lowest or one of the lowest in the country. And as of March of last year, Alberta has had the lowest minimum wage in the country at $9.40 per hour. It's perhaps not surprising then that a number of working Albertans, Albertans with good jobs, still live in poverty. For instance, in 2009, 47% of children living in poverty had at least one or more parent working full-time, full-year job. And 63% of families using the food banks have at least one adult working in a full-time, full-year job. Alberta also has the lowest unionization rate in the country. As we know, unions are integral in securing well-paid, secure jobs that lead to middle-class lifestyles. In fact, a study, by, a study on inequality by the OECD found that the most important factor in achieving equality was membership in a union. The provincial government has, for the past two decades, pursued policies that undermine the rights of workers in collective bargaining. As a result, Alberta has the lowest unionization, unionization rates in the country and failed to protect good, secure, well-paying jobs. Now, there are several measures that can and should be done to reverse this, train, to reverse this trend and bring uh, an increase income equality in this province. The first step is for all of us not to drink the Kool-Aid. It might seem like it will taste good, but it won't. There is no sound economic or moral reasoning that giving money to the rich is better than giving it to the poor. It is ideology and politics, not economics. The trickle-down theory has proven to be false in this province and elsewhere, and it only serves to make the rich much richer. Indeed, it appears that the opposite is in fact true. Our economy is best served by sending money down, not up, where it will be spent, actually spent in, uh, in in the economy, rather than being sent abroad to tax havens. 
Studies have shown that it would cost the Alberta government less to eradicate poverty than to simply manage it as it does on an ongoing basis. We also need to move forward from targeted social programs to a universal approach based on rights. People have a right to a good living, like a living wage policy. People have the right to childcare, universal childcare. People have the right to housing, universal housing. And we need to move to progressive revenue reform. We need to eliminate the tax break for the rich, which we can see was a failed experiment, and bring back a progressive income tax. We should stop subsidizing wealthy oil corporations to remove and export our fossil fuel resources. And we need to make sure that Albertans receive the maximum value for this one-time sale of our resources. As the CEO of Enbridge recently uh, correctly pointed out in a recent speech, quote, nobody's making any more oil and gas, so we'd better get a fair value for it. I couldn't agree more. So it's time for the owners to take that approach as the oil corporations seem to be doing themselves. We also need to make sure that when we raise royalty rates that we're using that increase in, in revenue in a uh, prudent measure, in a prudent way. This would be through by investing it in creating a green economy, by investing in green technology and infrastructure, as well as saving for our non-fossil dependent future and putting that revenue into the Heritage Savings Trust Fund. We also need to start supporting unionization and respect collective bargaining in order to help secure real income and employment gains for the bottom 19, 90%. This does not include, for instance, imposing uh, contracts on our teachers and our doctors. And finally, we also need to strengthen democracy and good governance. And a good way to move forward on that is to move from our first-past-the-post election system to proportional representation. So just some ideas to chew on. Thank you very much for having me, and I look forward to your questions.